I was always inspired by people who said, you can't. All that I am is this pig-headed, determined person that wants to prove people wrong. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, the coach who holds the record for the longest winning streak in any college sport. It is literally a game based on the retrieval of a dead ball. Don't let anybody tell you you can't go get one more ball. Paul Asiante led his Trinity College squash team to 13 consecutive national championships. But it's his insights about how to handle loss and adversity that makes his perspective so valuable, especially for parents. Young people coming to us today are different than they were last year or five years ago or a decade ago. They look more put together than they've ever looked before. They, they just look perfect. And the first time they face adversity, they fall to pieces like a porcelain doll. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, Coach Paul Asiante, is author of the memoir, Run to the Roar, which could easily have had a different title. You say, Paul, that uh, originally I wanted this book to be titled Teaching Your Child to Lose. So how is it possible that the winningest coach in collegiate history would want to write a book called Teaching Your Child to Lose? Well, I also coach tennis at Trinity College, and we lose a lot in tennis, so uh, I do see the value of it. Um, but even, even though the overall match score may have been a win for Trinity, very often different players in that match, individuals had lost matches. And it's absolutely the case that most learning comes from failure. When you're winning, you instantaneously look to the next contest. You don't, you don't even pause for a moment. It may have been a tiebreaker in the fifth game, and you barely snuck through, but it's just human nature to just put it in the win column and look to the next match. But when you lose, the train stops, and there's this great kerfuffle, and, and people are looking in the mirrors, and, oh, my God, what just happened here? And, you know, what can I do better? How do I change? And there's, a, there's a, usually a very healthy internal introspective review. If you lose too much then the finger ends up pointing at the coach, and that's a place none of us want to be. But uh, that's what happens when you lose. So, so it's hard to know where to start your story, but, but I'm intrigued by your personal history because as I was reading about your life, certainly before you were 18 and up until the time you were a young adult, uh, you did not have a success track uh, in front of you. Basically, your teachers they they didn't uh, they didn't have a, a good uh, projection for for where you were you were heading. What were they telling you in those days? The reason I went to college is because my guidance counselor told me I wasn't college material, and I thought about that man every day. And on graduation day, I thanked him for his lack of confidence, and that's been pretty much my story. I was always inspired by people who said, you can't. I'm not very talented. Um, I'm not very skilled. I'm the only person in the Springfield College Hall of Fame 
who was cut by his coach three times. All that I am is this pig-headed, determined person that wants to prove people wrong. And while that helps a person be successful, it comes with all kinds of baggage and 20 years of therapy. <laughs> and when I was given, designated the job as head coach at West Point, I knew in my heart I had no right having that job. There's no way I should have gotten that position. And I can honestly say that probably four nights a week, I would wake up to the same recurring nightmare that in the middle of an Army-Navy match in front of 4,000 cadets, at a quiet moment in the rally, a general would stand up and scream, stop the match, this man is an imposter, and they would take me away in handcuffs. And this seems to have been what drove me to whatever level of success I've had. So, so I have to stop and pause. You were cut three times from which team in college? The gymnastics team. Cut three times, and what was your reaction to the failure? It was pretty bizarre. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm the most passive, non-confrontive person in the world. But there have been a couple of times in my world where something blurted out of my mouth and I don't know where it came from. It didn't come from my mind. But the, when the coach cut me, I'll never forget this. Coach Walcott said, Paul, um, I have to cut you. And I said, you can't. And he said, well, I just did. And I said, well, you're going to have to get campus safety to come here every day and throw me out of the gym because I'm coming here every day. And he rolled his eyes and said, you know, why do I always get these kids at Springfield? And he made me the manager. And I would come to the gym and train every day as the manager. Same thing happened sophomore year. Halfway through sophomore year, it happened a third time. By my senior year, I was the captain of the team and, and competed in the national championships. Because you just kept training. Because I just refused to admit he could be right. Is, is there anybody who ever told you anything that you didn't like hearing and you said, I admit you're right? I think I probably should have admitted that many times. Um, it, what it would have... There's been collateral damage in my life. Success in one place contrasted by failure elsewhere. And while it may have cost us a national championship or I may have not been the captain of the gymnastics team or whatever, there might have been a healthier balance somewhere along the way that would have saved others in my life somewhere in tear. So I think I probably, there are probably times where I should have listened um, it's only now that I've come to understand that all that matters are people. And highway signs and banners and national championship rings and all of that are really distractions. And 252 consecutive wins is just a distraction. So for, for the audience that is not familiar with you, that is not familiar with squash, first of all, describe to me that little ball. Because to me, a squash ball is one of the most fascinating. I can't believe they built a whole game around. How would you describe that, that squash ball? Well, it's interesting. When they, when they invented this sport, they sat down and they came up with 
a, a game that was based upon the retrieval of an of a inherently inert object. It's a round ball, rubber, pressurized, that literally doesn't bounce. It doesn't bounce. If you drop it from above your head, it doesn't even bounce up to your shin. Um, through the course of the game, it heats up as a result of friction and it becomes livelier. But it is literally a game based on the retrieval of a dead ball. And so it's just sheer the desire to go get one more ball back. And it's, it's never occurred to me until now, but maybe that was the attraction for me. It's that you can go get one more ball. Don't let anybody tell you you can't go get one more ball. And it's, it's, that's the beauty of that sport. So the other schools also knew that the best squash players were overseas. So how was it that you managed to grab some of the best of the best against competing against Harvard and Yale and, and all the other Ivies. If a young man went to a very elite private school in India, he knew about Harvard. And so to get young people to look at Trinity College seriously was a difficult task. But what I had to do was I had to essentially recruit their parents. So Lafika Ragansi from Gaborone, Botswana, has never heard of Trinity College. He has heard of Harvard and he has heard of Yale. And he grew up in a house with a dirt floor. And his father worked in the diamond mines. But he was a world-class junior squash player. So I had to begin the process of convincing Mrs. Ragansi that, you know what, Harvard is a great school. But Trinity is a pretty darn good school. But you're going to send your son halfway around the world wouldn't it be nice to know that at three in the morning you could pick up a phone and call and I would answer your phone call and you could say, you know, Lafika sounded a little depressed today. Is everything okay? And that I would have an answer for you. That's my promise to you. And they started to realize that, well, it's not quite Harvard, or at least from what we know reputationally, but someone's going to watch over my boy like he was his own son. So that's that's a round-the-clock job. Is that the way you always, from the very beginning, treated your career and your life as a round-the-clock, totally immersive thing? Or did that come out of necessity as, that's the only way I'm going to build this team? No, this is how I always conducted my professional career. Being um, sort of from an old-fashioned Italian family, there was this mindset that it was almost noble for the man to go out and hunt the prey. I can remember coaching at West Point and leaving on Christmas Eve to drive to Port Washington Tennis Academy to recruit at a tournament. And I remember saying goodbye to my family and it was almost like, isn't that, isn't that great that Paul's going to go and do this on Christmas Eve? If I knew then what I know now, that could have waited till two days later. But no, this is how I always conducted myself. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that an Italian Catholic family would say goodbye on Christmas Eve and be proud of you. Well, my father was just so proud that I was working so hard to do this for my family. But the irony was that it was the family that was suffering. Tell me about that, because you're very open about that in your book, Run to the Roar, uh, Coaching to Overcome Fear. So we're talking with Coach Paul Asiante, Trinity squash coach. Um, how did your, what price did you pay? And what price did, what price did your family pay? 
Well, I wrote the, we wrote the book for three reasons, um, and Jim Zug, the author, did a, a ma- marvelous job. The primary reason that we wrote this book is I wanted to write an apology to my three children because I wasn't there for them the way a father should have been when they were growing up. And they paid a price for that. And, uh, you know, we've spoken about it. We've, I'm extremely close to my three children now. And, but I've sat down with them and looked them in the eye and have said, I wasn't there at every fork in the road. Two of them chose the right paths. And my oldest son, Matthew, became a heroin addict and lived on the streets of Hartford for 16 years. And we live in this society today where people will say, well, you know, you can't blame yourself for that. You know, he had a predisposition to addiction. So, of course, you can't blame yourself for that. And my feeling is, no, I can blame myself for that. As a parent, you sign up for it. You need to be there at every fork. Do I think Matthew was going to become an addict irrespective? Yes. But would I be able to look in the mirror now and be able to say, at least I did the very best I could? No. As a parent, that I can't imagine that level of fear of having to go see my son who is in the middle of, of going through a heroin habit, totally addicted, and he wants your help and you can't help him. That's the most frightening thing I can imagine. Almost. It it was a very difficult 16 years, probably 20 different rehab programs, you know, being in a van, driving to play Harvard and with your team and driving past a corner where you see your son standing there selling, um, being called to a morgue to identify a body, hoping it was him so that you would at least know that his suffering was over. The irony of it is, I don't think that was very brave that I sprung into action. Actually, the guilt that I felt caused me to react incorrectly because I enabled. And what a parent needs to do when a child is an addict is counterintuitive to what a parent wants to do. So I would believe every day when Matthew would call me and he would say, there's a group of people, dad, they're after me. I need to get out of town. If you'll give me $80, I'll catch the bus down to Waterbury and get away from this scene. So I give him the money. Part of me not wanting to believe, but knowing it's probably going to go up his nose. And then the next day I get another phone call. Well, I missed the bus, Dad. I need your help today. And it would just go on and on. And I couldn't ever stop and do that tough love thing that everybody talks about because I was so riddled with guilt. And ultimately, when you're dealing with addiction, only the addict can help themselves. You can't. And... um I remember one of the most poignant moments. I just, I couldn't deal with this anymore. And Matthew called me and asked for money. And I, I love Matthew. I didn't like what Matthew had become. That wasn't the little boy we were raising at West Point. 
And so he needed $100. And he came to the college, and I took out a $100 bill, and I lit it with a match right in front of him and burned $100. And he said, what have you done? And I said, I was going to lose $100 today anyway. But the point is, it didn't go to harm you. And that was sort of the beginning of a turning point. But um, it's, it's, it is hell on earth to have an addict as a child. And I didn't, because I didn't feel that I had been there for him all the way along, my reaction during that time probably hurt or slowed down his recovery. But it was always ironic how it would come up. I'm on a tennis court hitting with Martina Navratilova prior to a tennis match between the Hartford Fox Force and the Schenectady Flyers or whoever they were, and the phone rings. Dad, it's Matt. I'm in jail. I need you to bail me out. Most good fathers, I would hope, would get in a car and drive to bail him out. I stayed in Schenectady. And then I beat myself up for two weeks because I did. So it would always this conflict, you know, this we'd be coming back from the national championship, this elation to a phone call. Dad, I'm in a bind. And the, I was just so blown away by the, it's almost like I was in the middle of this play, this really bad play, the, where I was constantly brought to the top of the seesaw only to be reminded that the bottom of the seesaw needed me at this moment. And, and it was my own flesh and blood. But now here's the question, because you said, uh, where, where was that player from, uh, the gold, uh, the diamond mines? Um, yeah, Lafika was from Botswana. Okay, so today, it occurs to me, you probably wouldn't tell Lafika's mother, or would you? At 3 a.m., you can call me. Uh, and, and this gets into a theme. I'm doing a story with another guy right now who started the Harvard program on negotiation. His name is Bill Urey. He wrote the book Getting to Yes. He followed it up with a book called The Power of a Positive No. He said, in order to get to the right yes, to the wise yes, that really benefits your interest and the other sides too, you have to say no to a lot of things that are also important, but not as important. Today, would you say no to the 3 a.m. phone call? 100%. I had the disease to please. It was more important to me to get the approval of those parents and those children than it was at that time to get to be there for my own. Absolutely, I would not take that call now. Um, it's just there's a big scoreboard in the sky, and when you go to meet your maker, he's not going to ask you what your, your winning streak was. He's going to say, did you do the right thing? Or she's going to say, did you do the right thing? Were you there for your children? All right, so now let me ask you about that alternate title and teaching kids failure, teaching kids how to fail. Because a lot of kids who have gotten to the Trinity team and to any of these elite teams, they've known success all their lives. And a lot of them are very high academic performers. Success, success, success. And I've heard from a lot of people in colleges, administrators, teachers, they're seeing a lot of kids whose parents have actually smoothed the way for some of those successes. They didn't let their kids fail. And they get to college. Have you seen kids like this? And the first failure, there's trouble. Young people coming to us today are different than they were last year or five years ago or a decade ago. 
they look more put together than they've ever looked before. They, they just look perfect. It's all together. Um, and the first time they face adversity, they fall to pieces like a porcelain doll. They cannot handle failure. They cannot handle losing. They have to be perfect. So let me ask you, as part of your recruiting for the, for the, for the young people who are going to be able to withstand the adversity they're going, to have to un, they're going to have to withstand in the competitive squash world, do you look for the failures in their life and how they've handled it? What I'm looking for is character large people. And you don't get that from listening to the parents or the professors or the coaches of, of that child. You get that from speaking to other people, to their competitors, to their competitors' coaches. That's how you find out what a young person is made of. So what I want to do is I want to find character large people. And my definition of character, and I asked them this on the first day, is what would you do when nobody is watching? Would you do the right thing? Only about 20 minutes before this interview... We were walking through the street, and you're saying, yeah, I need to get water because I need to get hydrated because I have this disease. As a, what disease? What, what disease do you have? I have Meniere's disease, which is a disease that attacks the inner ear, and it causes devastating bouts of vertigo. My body is broken. I mean, there, there is no doubt about it. I have Meniere's disease. I've had a stroke. I've had five knee surgeries and three back surgeries. You know, basically, the, the shell that they'll find on the beach is definitely broken. Well, let me ask you, though. So, so here you are with this Meniere's disease. And by the way, so Meniere's disease, stroke, Matthew, your son, who is still, by the way, how is he doing today? Yeah, Matthew is, Matthew is finding his way through the world. He, um, uh, I'm proud of him. He's, he is definitely he has a job. He lives with a young woman who has two children, and he's fighting the fight. He still wrestles daily with the challenges of controlling anger and those sorts of things. Um, is, is, is he still addicted to heroin? No, no I believe Matthew is clean uh, from heroin right now. Um, and, and we pray every day that it will stay that way. So let me ask you, with all that, actually, we started the conversation from your teachers, guidance counselors who said you're not college material, to being cut from the th team three times, to, you know, to Monera's disease, to your stroke, to Matthew, and you're smiling all the time, and you're laughing all the time, and people who know you talk about this. You've always got a smile on your face. So where did you get that from? Um, first of all, on the work side of things, Confucius said, he who loves what he does can never find work. I've never worked a day in my life. Yeah, but where did you get this incredible optimism from this sense of appreciation for the little things? Was that something, because all of us parents ask this, what can we do for our kids that will allow them, really what you're talking about is, it's resilience, and it's resilience with a smile on your face. So was that something you got from your parents, or was it just you were born with it, or you, it evolved in you? What was it? Pure failure. All of these things that I've learned and how to approach my life came from failure. You're saying the word failure with this glowing smile on your face, okay? You couldn't have been smiling in those early failures, 
No, well, this came through therapy and, and having a chance to learn about what's really important. So being at the bottom and feeling so poorly about yourself, what you become to realize is the essence of you is all that matters. And this, I'll never own... When I go and solicit funds for the college, I go into the room of these CEOs dressed like this, and they laugh. And they say, you're the only person that could get away with walking into the room like that. And I tell them, if I came in in a suit, what you would realize is I can't afford a good suit. <laughs> but this is me. This is the essence of who I am. And I've come to believe that that's good enough. Recording this right now is, is a longtime science journalist, Cynthia Graber. And because she's a science journalist, I want her to ask you a question because I'm still fascinated with the dead ball that's at the center of this game that, that, that we all chase around and we love to chase around. And there's something about this dead ball. It gives us hope because when, when it drops three inches off the ground and we actually hit it and get it and, it and it hits the wall above what you call the tin where you've got to hit it. It's like the net in tennis. It's like, if I can do that once, maybe I can do it again, right? But from a science perspective, what do you think about building a sport around a dead ball that doesn't bounce? So I have never seen squash before. Although maybe I can have a kind of mental image of walking around a gym where it was being played. And when you talked about this dead ball, I was thinking, how in the world do you have a sport that's based on a ball that's not bouncing until you warm it up and get it going? And also that changes the dynamics of the game too, because the ball changes as you're playing it. That's a very, that's a very good point. And interestingly enough, that there's strategy that goes with that. So for instance, between games, um, you hit two minutes rest. The players leave the court, they come back in, they start to play. The ball has cooled down some. So strategically, we teach the guys to be more aggressive at the start of the next game because the ball's not going to be as easily retrieved. Off, there are occasions where the ball will break. You've got to rewarm up a ball. That ball, when they start playing, is not as warm as the prior ball was. Again, strategically, there's a difference. So, you know, when, when you talk about when people talk about a game like pool, it's very much about the physics of it. You hit it right here. In theory, it's going to go there. I know it. I can not usually do it exactly as I'd like to, but I understand the science behind it. But when you have a ball that's constantly changing, if you hit it this way, it's not necessarily going to bounce this much. It might bounce that much. That's You can't even think of it scientifically because it's never. it, it won't be the same as it was when you hit it the time before. It's more like chess. In, that re in the regard that all the different pieces have different powers and different abilities to move. And this is, it's been called chess at 90 miles an hour. And um, so it, the amount of adjustments that go on at, at mock speed are so interesting, which is why the biggest enemy to squash success is emotion. Because when emotion comes in, you become incapable of being cognizant or being able to recognize what adjustments need to be made. And so you can't make them because you're not aware of them. Isn't it the same thing with tennis in terms of 
If you're too emotional, you won't be able to make the adjustments in between points? Absolutely. As in with tennis, emotion blocks the ability to recognize what adjustments need to be made. However, in tennis, there are larger gaps of time and the changeovers are longer so that you have opportunities to regroup more quickly. There's an author who wrote a book called The Sports Gene, Sports Illustrated's Mm -hmm. David Epstein. And uh, one of the things that they discovered in baseball players, they studied the Los Angeles Dodgers. They found that an unusually high percentage of the players had 2012 vision, all the way down to, I think, 2011 and 2010. And you would think that enabled them to see the ball better. But what David Epstein describes is it actually, they couldn't see the ball coming in at them at 90 miles an hour. What they were able to see with that vision that saw fine detail at longer distances, they were able to see what's called anticipatory cues, little movements in the shoulder or the hand or the motion that other people might not have seen Mm -hmm. with just regular good old perfect vision. And that helped them anticipate what was coming. Squash seems to be a game, given how fast it moves, you need to be able to anticipate. And how long does it take to become a good anticipator on that squash court? I would say that in three years' time, a person like you could become a a very good competitive squash player in your age group. You had to throw in in that age age group. (laughs) But you know what? In running, which I love... I actually like the idea. There are a lot of really good athletes in their 50s and 60s and even beyond. Sure. So uh, so you give me three years? Three years. Coach A, thank you for joining us on a Wavemaker Profile. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes. If you love it, I hope you'll leave a glowing review. I'm your host, journalist Michael Shoulder. Thanks for joining me.